Welcome along to the Care Team Sessions podcast. This is a podcast of talks from our monthly CPD events. For those that aren't already familiar with us, the West Midlands Care Team is a charity pre-hospital enhanced care team operating in the Birmingham area for over 30 years now. Care Team Sessions CPD events have something for all clinical levels from community responders right through to experienced in-hospital clinicians along with medics from other services like police and fire. We want to share the team's knowledge and experience with you. So Care Team Sessions is free to attend or to listen back to on this podcast. It's also an opportunity to raise money for the charity, which would help us to continue to do the work we do. If you'd like a CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, we ask for a donation of five pounds. Details of how to donate and claim your certificate are in the podcast description. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Search at WM Care Team. Enjoy the podcast. My name's Dan. I'm one of the care team doctors, as Les has said, and I also work as an emergency department registrar at the QE just up the road, our local major trauma centre. Um, today, we're going to be talking about hypothermia, which I initially thought maybe it was a bit pessimistic to bring up in sort of mid or early September, but actually as we've seen the weather's kind of taken a bit of a turn for cooler now, um, so maybe it was a bit more prescient. So um, as a bit of an overview, we're going to talk a little bit about initially what the sort of physiology of uh, sort of thermostasis or homeostatic mechanisms behind staying warm um, in the context of hypothermia, how that goes wrong. Then we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about how to recognize that and recognize how sick somebody is. And then obviously the main thing is sort of how to manage that in a safe way. At the end, we'll talk a little bit about what we can offer in hospital too, maybe some of the limitations and hopefully some sort of guidance as to who needs what treatment and perhaps when to maybe not treat this, pe- this patient or patients. So initially, just to say, humans are endothermic animals. So we are creatures that produce our own heat as opposed to things like lizards and snakes that rely on an external heat source. That heat is produced from cellular metabolism centrally, and it radiates obviously uh, peripherally and warms the sort of the core of the body. But the peripheries obviously need to be warmed too. Um, we operate at a pretty consistent temperature at 36 to 37 and a half degrees, and at that temperature, that's when all the sort of enzymatic processes work, all the um, all the sort of nerve conductions and uh, electrical impulses work, and the, pa- the the body is kind of happy. Uh, when it gets a bit cold outside, um, things start to slow down, and we as a body start to try and adapt. Um, we have adaptive mechanisms to try and stop ourselves from getting colder. First mechanism that we have is to try and generate a bit more heat. So that's obviously a bit more easy to do. Um, we can walk around, we can shiver. Uh, if you exercise sort of more intensively, so starting doing things like high intensity intervals, which takes maybe about three seconds for me to feel a bit more, feel that heat, um, you can increase your metabolism by about 20 times. So it is something that we can do very, sort of very effectively. And that's simply by activating the cellular uh, respiration in our skeletal muscle in more a way than it is when it's at rest. Um, we can also try and prevent a bit of heat loss. That's fairly limited. Um, we can do a bit of peripheral vasoconstriction. We can, our hairs can stand on end when we're cold, which is called piloerection. Um, and we can obviously try and stop sweating too. Now, hypothermia is pretty underdiagnosed in a temperate climate, and that hypothermia is when the heat generation is, um, sort of the heat loss prevention is outweighed by the heat loss into the environment. It is underdiagnosed in the UK um, because 
if we're at anything less than about 25 degrees, the body starts to lose heat. So which is actually you know, pretty balmy, pretty balmy evening. You'll start to get cold if you spend long enough out in it. That's obviously assuming that you're naked. Which, you know, it's fresh as week, isn't it? So. <laughs> Um, we're pretty terrible as people at preventing heat loss. Um, we're, we've evolved to be in tropical climates, so yeah, 25 degrees is the threshold at which we start to get a bit colder. Um, there are a few sort of mechanisms in which we lose heat into the environment, so we'll just go through that very quickly with a bit of physics, just really briefly, because that's not what we're here mainly for. But radiation is your electromagnetic waves from hot matter to colder matter. Whether you're alive or not, you're going to lose heat from a hot area to a colder one. Um, then there's convection, which is heat which is transferred from, directly from your skin to the local environment, whether that's air or water. Um, air is a fairly good insulator, which is why we tend to warm up a bit more when we've got clothes on, because we're just trapping air in there. But uh, if that air is moving, so such as if you're ex fully exposed to the, to the air or if you're in a windy place, especially if the wind is cold, then any warm air that is on you as a result of you convecting heat into that air will be lost and you'll get more cold air coming on again, if that makes sense. So you're continually replacing warmed air with cold air, so you're not going to really warm up that way. And you can get pretty nasty wind chill if the air is actually cold. Um, in water, well, water takes on heat a lot more easily than air. So if you get wet, you're going to be in trouble a lot more quickly. Um, and then you also have conduction. So conduction is where you transfer heat directly from one solid to another. So that's your skin in direct contact with something else, whether it's clothes which are then outside, uh, then exposed to the outside, or more classically, it's your trauma patient. So someone who is stuck on the floor or trapped in a vehicle um, in contact with something that's cold and unable to get themselves off it. Uh, also, the patient who ends up on a scoop for ages. So bear in mind, your scoops are normally pretty cold. We went to a case a little while ago with a patient who was stuck in a industrial freezer and he was already quite cold. Um, and then the scoop had been also in the freezer for a little while, so we had to peel him off the scoop, literally, in A&E. <laughs> uh, and then the thir third me fourth mechanism is evaporation. So by, um, by warmer, air, warmer water sorry, evaporating into cooler air, you lose heat at the area where the evaporations happen from. So um, if you're sweating, you'll lose heat, and if you're conversely not sweating, you'll retain a bit more. So that's one of the body's mechanisms to try and prevent heat loss too. Cool. Um, so let's have a look. Can you guys think of any sort of risk factors that might predispose a healthy person to hypothermia? Sort of any, anyone shout out? So this is like circumstantial. Life. Pardon? Life. Yeah, so being, being still for a long time, yeah. Drowning. drowning, yeah, drowning definitely. If someone's sort of immersed in water for a lengthy, or submersed in water, that can cause a problem, can't it? Yeah, definitely. So if you're, if you're sort of someone with a lot less adipose, you will get colder, won't you? Yeah, and alcohol, that's potentially more on the pathological side, isn't it? Oh, on the pathological side, where people start vasodilating and you start having an adverse response to, to cold mediated by that drug. Um, so pretty much the same sort of things as I've come up there. Um, if you're male, you're more likely to get cold. That's purely biology in that you typically have a bit less body fat, um, unless you don't do any exercise like me. And then things like water immersion, as you've said, Extremes of age, people who are elderly often are missing a fair bit of fat and they often don't have as much muscle to use to warm up. Um, and then people who are really little, so neonates, children, tend to have a much, well not tend to, always have a bigger surface area of skin compared to the body. 
So they are much more likely to radiate or convect or conduct that heat out. And as we know, kids who are sick get cold super quickly. Um, and then if you're exhausted, so if you've just run a half marathon and, or, or marathon or whatever, and you're absolutely shattered, you've got nothing left to give, your glycogen stores and glucose are depleted, you're not going to be able to move around to stay warm when it's cold. So people who are tired will get cold quite quickly. Um, and then what about in yeah, other factors than purely circumstantial? I think you guys mentioned alcohol. People who are confused and um, maybe behaving inappropriately in relation to the weather around them, they might potentially not be able to keep themselves as warm just by virtue of their behavior. Then there are some states such as hypothyroidism where your base metabolic rate is actually depressed, so you're not producing enough heat to counter the environmental pressures around you. Patients who are septic um, often get cold instead of hot, especially the elderly. And in the context of trauma, as we've said, people who are sort of sat still, immobilized for a length of time will often get cold. So we try and get involved in that as quickly as we can. Um, just a little corner down there, there's the lethal diamond or diamond of death in trauma. Cold hypothermia is one of those things. It makes acidosis works worse. It makes coagulopathy worse. The platelet aggregation gets a lot worse at around 34 degrees. So it's, you don't have to be that cold to start running into trouble. And then the fourth element is hypocalcemia. All of those enter this, they worsen each other and you enter a bit of a death spiral until you start correcting all of them. So definitely useful in trauma, but, um, but relevant in all settings. So we'll talk a little bit about the sort of physiological effects of getting cold, of hypothermia. Initially, you have your sort of your compensatory mechanisms. So these are the ones that we mentioned earlier. So you stop sweating, um, your, you start sort of shivering, and you get your hair standing up on end, um, and you get peripheral vasoconstriction, so your patient gets a bit pale. And this all sort of helps reduce convective loss a little bit. Once you start um, trying to sort of compensate for that by generating more heat, that's when you start expending more energy. So you'll start becoming a bit more tachyneic, a bit more tachycardic. And so your patient who is in the early stages of heat loss of hypothermia might actually be expending a fair amount of energy to try and stay warm and might paradoxically seem like they're very sort of very agitated or very alert. You can get, as I said, up to sort of five to 20 times heat generation compared to your base metabolic rate by moving. So it's an excellent way. And as you all know, if you kind of sat there in cold, if you do a few star jumps or um, a few squats, then you get a lot, a lot warmer, a lot more quickly. Um, what about when we get past that? So patients will slowly start slowing down, their whole metabolism will start shutting down because the physiological processes are not able to really work at the normal speed when your temperature goes down. So your physiological requirements will start to drop and consequently your respiratory rate will start going down because you're not needing to clear as much CO2 and you're not needing quite as much oxygen and your entitled you would expect to start dropping off too a little bit. The respiratory rate as you get really severely hypothermic can go really really low and in some cases it's been recorded as low as three breaths a minute um, and this is in people who are alive. And the important thing to remember is that these people may actually potentially have shallow breathing instead of agonal breathing. If you, you, some of you or some of, most of you will have seen agonal breathing before, which is that kind of ragged, occasional deep gasp like a <gasps> that a patient takes as they're in or approaching arrest. Shallow breathing is very different to that, and it might be like someone sleeping, like just that very light breath, but very, very occasional. 
Um, and then as, the, as that starts to drop, temperature starts to drop, the heart rate will stop too. So looking at circulation, heart rate will go down initially into a sinus bradycardia and your blood pressure will start dropping too. So yes, part of that is down to decreased physiological demand, but some of that is also because of impaired conduction of the electrical impulses. Um, so as a consequence of the heart rate dropping, yep, blood pressure does drop and can potentially be impalpable at the extremes of temperature. You should feel a radial pulse in people when they're still around sort of mid-30s, but as they start dropping below 30, you might lose that. Um, and central pulses might disappear entirely too. Your patient might still have an output at that point, so just make sure that you check, and we'll come on to that in a second. Um, and then let's have a look at your ECG. I'm not going to bring a whole one up, but just a waveform there. In, heart, in your heart rate, you tend to see a slowing down to sinus bradycardia first, and then you might develop uh, Osborne waves or J waves, which we don't really know the significance of, but are this little positive deflection on your ECG just before your ST segment starts, so just at the end of your QRS. Um, it's not pathognomonic though, so while it's probably worth knowing about, you don't, you don't need to kind of be, have your management guided by it. Um, it's important to know again that your heart rate and blood pressure have dropped, um, but your demand has dropped too, so you don't need to necessarily try and overcorrect it, you don't need to go aggressive on fluids, um, you don't need to try and actively chase this normal physiology, and actually at low temperatures, things like atropine uh, probably won't work on, this, on, on your patient. As the heart rate drops lower they, and the temperature drops more, you are more predisposed to arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, and if you keep going lower and lower, you get to a state where your heart can suddenly convert into VF with a very, very minimal stimulus. You go lower and lower, if you're still with an output, your patient could potentially just develop spontaneous asystole at about 26, 27 degrees, so um, something to watch out for there. When we're looking at warming patients up from, from the outside, we're relying on peripheral circulation, taking some of that external heat into the core and then distributing it around again. So if you've lost your cardiac output, that's not going to happen. So do try and avoid um, VF and asystole. You can't warm per a person up pre-hospitally if they've arrested. Um, from a neurological point of view, uh, can I bring that up? Yeah, you're from D. Your GCS will start to drop as your brain cools down. Initially, you'll just be a bit confused and a bit, a bit weird. Um, and then as you become more severely hypo, uh, hypothermic, you will also become comatose. That will also be partly as a result of your glucose being depleted. Um, we talk about time being brain in cardiac arrest. As your body cools, it kind of grinds to a halt. The metabolism in the brain slows right down. Um, and so that's actually quite protective. Being cold is protective in and of itself but it's important to know that it's still a diseased state in this setting. Um, obviously in a sort of bypass surgery, patients are artificially cooled to really low temperatures and there's a period of time where, um, you know, where the, patient has, the patient's heart has stopped and everyone's just like fine with it. Um, hopefully that's not the case in pre-hospital. Um, as you warm the patient, these abnormalities will start to turn back and simply by warming them up, their respirate will pick up, their breathing will pick up, blood pressure, this law sort of starts self-resolving unless they're in arrest, which um, yeah, obviously won't convert itself. So we'll go very briefly into classifying some of the severity. Um, there's a few tools that we can use, but generally speaking, it's safe to say as you get colder, you get more sick and um, your risk of cardiac arrest goes up very substantially. 
your reduced metabolism still requires uh, still requires a continuous feed of oxygen of glucose um, and obviously you still need to clear your co2 and your other toxins so even at a low output we can't chill out not to pun too much if the patient does go into arrest sorry sorry <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, at what level do these, point, do these problems sort of start to arise? Uh, typically, we categorize hypothermia into mild, moderate, and severe, and I can see that some of you are taking notes, which you're welcome to do, but we'll come back to the limitations of this in a second. So 32 to 35 degrees, um, you'll start having shivering, you might be a bit confused. You initially have those compensatory mechanisms where you are quite stimulated, your high heart rate, high respirate, and then as you get colder, that will start tailing off. 28 to 32 degrees is our moderate hypothermia, and that's typically where our shivering kind of stops and patients then rapidly go off a cliff, um, become confused and tired, and start having reduced breathing, reduced heart rate. You might see these arrhythmias, J waves, and yeah, everything starts to sort of shut down. In severe hypothermia, so under 28 degrees, yep, there's no shivering. Patients are either very sort of comatose or completely unconscious, um, and they may have very slow breathing, potentially absent if they're in arrest and blood pressure and, uh, will be very low. Things like VF and asystole are at high risk of happening. Um, obviously, to be able to monitor those temperatures, we need to have access to some devices. And I'll just take you through quickly what, what we have. So uh, the gold standard is to use a pulmonary artery catheter. And as you can imagine, that's pretty, um, pretty difficult to do pre-hospital. So, well, uh, it's very invasive. It goes right through the heart. Um, so right through major blood vessels centrally through the heart and then out into the pulmonary artery. So that's the gold standard, but we're not going to use that. Um, enhanced care resources like Merit or Care, uh, air ambulances, we carry esophageal and rectal thermometers and they go a lot lower than, um, than some of the other thermometers that are out there. So they are our equivalent sort of silver standard, if you like. Um, there's a few limitations to esophageal and rectal. So esophageal, you can... It, it can be well tolerated like an NG, but some patients don't like it at all and can, it can cause quite a lot of distress if they're awake. Um, it can go NG, but it's not ideal. And the other thing to bear in mind is if your patient has uh, drowned even if briefly, then they may have an esophagus and a stomach full of cold water. So your temperature may not reflect the temperature of the body. Um, rectally, uh, that's, the, that's the other option we can use if your patient is cold and is awake and you don't want to stick it down their throat. Um, the problem with these is you've got to put them in a good 15 centimetres at least, so you can't just, you can't just stick it through the anal sphincter, it's got to go right into the colon. Um, and if you've got loads of cold hard poo there, then it's not going to go very far. I'll let you think about that picture for a minute. <laughs> Uh, and then you've got your tympanic membrane, a thermometer, which is obviously what uh, everyone carries as sort of standard in, in ambulances. Um, what's the limitation with that, guys? Batteries. Batteries, <laughs> yeah, batteries is definitely one. <laughs> and yeah, it, as you said, it goes down to 34 degrees, and after that, it just says low. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind is if you've got an ear that's exposed to lots of wind on one side, you might find the temperatures are very different. If your patient's cardiac output is a bit low, you might find that that membrane has actually cooled down quite significantly. Obviously, if there's water there, that's the same problem. So if your temperature, if your thermometer reads low, then none of this is any use, is it really? You're mild, moderate, or low. Um, so let's very briefly, I'm not going to drag too long on it, but let's classify severity clinically. 
Um, without a reliable way to determine how cold someone is, we can use clinical science to give us an idea. And there are definitely some limitations to the Swiss system, which I've just brought up here, but it typically relies on your findings like level of consciousness, um, whether you're shivering or not, and whether there are any detectable vital signs towards the end. So stage one, you can see there, you've, you're conscious and shivering, um, and your temperature should be around or over 32 degrees. Uh, stage two, you might have a, you might be down in the V in the AVPU, so a bit more confused or a bit more drowsy and not shivering. That's sort of 28 to 32, as we said, the moderate hypothermia. And then people who are unconscious, you might not be able to detect clear, obvious signs of life, but as long as they're breathing a bit, then that's something. Um, that's sort of 24 to 28. And then if they are clearly in arrest, then that's under, typically they assume it's under 24, but again, very assumptive and quite broad. We can simplify that a little bit further, and I've put a little guideline up there for recess if you want to take a photo of that resuscitation journal. But the revised Swiss system done with the International Commission for Mountain Emergency Medicine made it a bit simpler and literally just said, you can use your AVPU as your determinant of how sick someone is. Um, and that basically gives you an idea of how likely they are to be in or towards cardiac arrest. So if you're conscious, you've got fairly low risk. If you're impaired consciousness, you'll have a moderate risk. And then if you're completely unconscious, but there is a pulse, then arrest is probably imminent um, or at very, very high risk of it. And obviously, if you can't detect any vital signs at all, um, so no breathing, no pulse, nothing, then obviously you have to assume that this person is in cardiac arrest. So managing, uh, we've basically got three main principles that we need to do. It's all well and good to talk about various sort of levels of heat loss and various levels of hypothermia, but the end goal is the same for everyone. Um, I'll cover cardiac arrest briefly towards the end, but JR Calc has clear guidance on it and hopefully you're all fairly au fait with that. But if not, we'll revise that. Um, and also that applies in sort of drowning settings. You typically get referred to the hypothermia algorithm, don't you, with some extra breathing. Um, the main focus is keeping your patient alive, literally stop them arresting um, and to stop them from getting colder. In the pre-hospital environment, realistically, you are not going to be able to rewarm anyone unless you spend hours on scene, in which case you maybe shouldn't be doing that. Um, so you, we're going to get rid of that and we're literally going to focus simply on stopping someone from arresting and making sure that they don't get any colder. I'll come back to rewarming in a second. So. For stage one hypothermia, these are the people who are alert and conscious, they're able to follow advice, and they still have a cardiac output to generate their own warmth. First thing to do, get them out of the cold environment, get them into your warmed ambulance or into a room, you know, a cafe, anything that's locally available that you can use as a shelter. And at that point, you wanna insulate them by taking any wet clothes off and putting warm clothes on, um, or, uh, or at least wrapping them up in something to keep them a bit warm, warmer, reduce heat loss. So things like a foil wrap of variable use. It doesn't really prevent heat loss very much, but it helps if they're still generating their own heat. It helps reflect a bit of that internally. Blankets really is your way forward. Give them something sugary. It, can, it Obviously it's nice if it's warm, but it doesn't have to be. A cold sugary drink is better than, well, I wouldn't add ice to it, but you know. <laughs> um, but a drink with sugar in it is worthwhile because they will have depleted their glucose stores by shivering and by trying to stay warm by active movement. Um, if it's appropriate, get them to do some exercises of their own, even if it's you know, even if it is like little squats or just moving arms and legs a bit in someone who's quite frail. I've put an asterisk there because obviously if they're immobilized or need to be immobilized, you're not going to do that. Um, don't get your C-spine injury patient to jump. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then I've put at the bottom query vehicle not required. We might not need to bring every one of these patients into hospital. Uh, if they're people who you clearly see are warming up nicely, there isn't another disease process by which they're getting really cold and they're, you know, they're following what you're doing. They're beginning to feel warmer, their core temperature's coming up. Then these are people that potentially with a bit of support you can leave at home or get back to their family and keep a close eye on. But that doesn't take into account obviously things like infection or yeah, trauma, so consider that. Management for stage two of hypothermia. So this is people who are quite confused. Um, they can't really follow commands or help themselves very well. Um, they might be a little bit semi-conscious. So we're going to extricate these guys to the warm environment as soon as possible. And if, however, it's going to take time, so if they're stuck you know, in somewhere really rural or, or entrapped somewhere, then you might want to start heat loss prevention in situ too. Wrap up their head. Head loses a lot of heat and it's just it's nice for them. They feel warm. Um, get, if you do have any heat sources like warm fluids or a ready heat, um, that sort of thing, then that's worth putting somewhere that, where there's good scent, sort of core conduction. So in the axillary um, or over the chest if you have a layer to put over them. You don't want to put it on skin because these people may get surface burns and they might be too comatose to tell you that they're in pain. Um, and then you wrap a blanket around them and then you wrap a foil blanket around that. And that's our kind of standard sort of care team process for people who are trying to keep warm. Um, we talk about very briefly about vapour barriers. So this is the concept of wrapping someone in soaking clothes in a sort of in an airtight or um, sort of fluid tight container. So like a bag, a plastic bag like this or a foil. Uh, let's bring that up. Something like this, but that one, as you can see, there's a gap down the middle, so you, that's not quite right. But if you can completely enclose them in a, uh, a water-resistant layer then, and you seal the openings, then when the water evaporates into that bag, then your heat loss will, you'll reach a point of saturation, the heat loss will be prevented, but remember that they'll still be losing heat from their skin into that wet clothing, so it's not ideal. But if you're going to be around up to 30 minutes before getting into an ambulance or somewhere warm, you might want to consider wrapping them up in wet clothes. But that's a discussion to be had along with the trauma desk and along with an enhanced care team. Um, cool. Um, and then, yeah, we've got that, which is a little burrito wrap, and it's really nice. Unless you're doing it on a course and you're already warm, you'll get really hot really quickly. Um, stage three hypothermia then. So this is the person who's sort of really critically sick, comatose. Um, you might initially mistake them for being dead. They might have an impalpable pulse or very weak pulse and occasional breaths and are likely yet yeah, to be unresponsive. And these are the people that we can make a real difference in for good or for bad. Um, and it's worth keeping a really, uh, really careful hand on making sure that they don't go into arrest. If they have a pulse, they can move their external warmth internally, as we said, and if they don't, then you can't warm them up. So um, you need to keep that pulse going. So try and avoid adjuncts if we can. So things like uh, OPAs and MPAs, if they're breathing, just let them be. Obviously, if it's full of water or vomit, then that's different. But um, even coughing in very low temperatures can trigger an arrest. Um, obviously, you don't want to get laryngospasm at a low temperature either, because then you're in trouble. Um, try to log roll your patients really slowly. Appreciate that there is an emergency here, but the speed is not going to help you. And um, accept their low metabolic state. So accept that their end tidal is going to be low, their blood pressure is going to be low, their heart rate and respirate rate is going to be really low. And caveat to this obviously is, is the primary cause hypothermia. 
Um, and there's no evidence that withholding CPR in these comatose cold individuals is harmful. And there is evidence that starting CPR on someone with a pulse can induce cardiac arrest and be counterproductive. I've talked about fluids um, just briefly there. Uh, these patients are likely to be dehydrated, but if you give them lots of fluid, just bear in mind that if it's not heated, you'll lose about half a degree body temperature per litre infused. So you might want to consider either being uh, conservative with it or holding on until you're in hospital. Uh, reassess these patients often, and these are the ones that you want to call an enhanced care team for because they can help just with a bit more fluency sometimes and some just having more hands on deck and having an invasive temperature monitor so we can see which way we're going. Um, cool. Stage four is you've gone into cardiac arrest. So you've got to check properly for signs of life in patients because, as we said, you could have rest rate of even three per minute. So you want to check for a pulse and you want to listen for breathing or feel for breathing for up to one minute, um, which is, yeah, a heck of a, you know, 10 seconds feels like a long time anyway, but a minute's a really long time, but you want to get this right. And if they are, if there's no pulse and there's no breathing, um, we can assume that they are in cardiac arrest. If they have what looks like PEA on the ECG, but they are taking shallow breaths, take that as a sign of life, and we're not going to go into stage four, okay? Um, obviously, your standard recognition of life extinct criteria apply. So if this person is very clearly dead, then you don't, you don't have to be bound by this. But some other things to consider too is, has this person clearly had prolonged asphyxia? So are they in asystole after an avalanche that's happened, uh, hopefully not in Birmingham, but an avalanche that has happened uh, hours ago when they're found in asystole with an airway packed full of snow? Or have they been found underwater with, no, with absolutely no witnessed time of going underwater? Um, again, these are discussions to be had with the desk, but you can consider terminating resource in situ with some of them. Uh, and then the other thing is if you can't compress the chest, that's a bad sign, isn't it? If it's too cold to compress. If you're not sure if they're just a bit stiff because they're cold or if they're legit incompressible, try, try pressing on their abdomen. And if the abdomen is frozen too, then that's a really poor prognostic sign. Um, we bring a little Lucas device with us, a mechanical CPR device. Have any of you guys seen that in use? Um, it's, it's a thing that we particularly like using on care because it reduces, not because it's better quality CPR, but it reduces cognitive load in the environment. Um, it doesn't get tired, the compressions are consistent, and you can leave it on the patient in transit, and that's of, at no risk of harm to yourself because you can be strapped in in transit. As you know, doing CPR in a moving vehicle, if you've either seen it or, or read about it or done it, it's something that is really risky and we would caution against generally. Obviously, sometimes the situation dictates it, but this makes it a lot easier. These people are going to have CPR for a long time, like hours. So you're going to want to get some, one of these on ASAP and commit to a long recess. Drowning, well, we won't really talk about because it's, yeah, it's a separate story. But as we've said, longer submersion is associated with a bad outcome. But if you're not sure, resuscitate them. And yeah, have a think about if there's another mechanism to, that could have induced an arrest. So. Are they dead because they're cold, so from hypothermia, or are they cold just, be, uh, just because they died a while ago? So, you know, if they've clearly been unwell for weeks or, you know, was last seen hours and hours ago with sepsis, um, then perhaps you might want to consider, actually, is this person cold because they've died? Um, so if in doubt, bring the patient in, in for arrest, okay? Um, what's, what do we do about defibrillating, guys? Do you know your guidelines for defibrillating and hypothermia? Yeah, that's right. So um, yeah, if anyone didn't hear, when you get down to 30 degrees, you're going to give a maximum of three shocks until they get up to or above 30 degrees. 
reason for that is that um, if, you're, if they haven't cardioverted, they're unlikely to do so, and you are likely to induce more damage to the myocardium by continuously shocking it. Um, so we hold off until they're at 30 degrees. Just a clear distinction, that isn't three stack shocks, that's one shock, two minute cycle, another shock, two minute cycle, third shock, and then you stop if you haven't got a viable rhythm at that point. Um, and then what about drugs, guys? Anyone know about drugs? Yeah, 30 to 34, 30 to 35, but we double our intervals in cardiac arrest to sort of six to 10 minutes, which is again, a heck of a long time if they're up to 34 degrees. And if they are under 30 degrees, we, we omit it. Now you're only gonna know that if you have invasive temperature monitoring in place. But if they're, um, you might wanna consider airway protection with these patients. And again, that's where an enhanced care team can help because if their chest is quite stiff, you're not gonna ventilate very well. Um, and if you're gonna be doing compressions, as you know, you're not gonna ventilate necessarily that well either. So a tube really helps with that. Um, and then insulate the patient's body. It's easy to forget that bit, but they're still gonna get continuously colder whilst they're in arrest, unless we try and mitigate that. So your heat pad goes on, your wraps go around them, even with the Lucas in situ, and, um, and the foil blanket goes around them, and you're gonna try and warm them up. But crucially, you're not gonna wrap their head this time because their brain is in a decreased metabolic state, and you wanna keep it that way until they're being actively warmed in a, much, in a more viable setting. There's no huge evidence, by the way, about drug intervals, but um, it's kind of accepted that they're not going to be metabolized when your body's not metabolizing. Um, and then if you then warm them up, you could have this big sort of reservoir of drug that's then going to potentially cause adverse issues. Um, a couple of tips to get it, to get your ambulance in tip-top condition and get your transfer smooth is to start warming the ambulance ASAP. Keep it, keep it warm. Don't open and close doors all the time. As I said, warm the head if they're alive, if they're cold let the head stay cool. It takes a lot of resources in resus to look after a patient who is peri-arrest or in arrest who's hypothermic. So give us lots of warning to mobilize all the resources. Um, ASAP, if you think you're working with a hypo accidental hypothermia, let the desk know and they'll let us know in resus and we can start preparing for when you're ready to pass your pre-alert. If you rock up with two minutes notice, we will, you'll get a frosty response. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, so very briefly, going through hospital management, um, we're going to do it quite quickly because this is obviously mostly pre-hospital, but um, things that we can do to warm patients up once they're there are to start forcing air over them. So like with bear huggers, which will sort of um, disp disperse warm air over the patient or under the patient. We get blankets out of our little uh, hot cupboard and put them on the patient to help reduce heat loss a bit. And we can put these pads on, which um, sort of these heat convective pads which will bring hot water over to the patient and then away um, as it you know the cooled water will be brought away and that will help by covering a large surface area with heat um, we can give them radiant heat so you know like an infrared lamp or warm in the room up um, if they're pediatric they can go in an incubator and um, it'd be nice if you had an adult incubator but we don't really do them but just we'll have to sweat through it um, that only really warms people up by about a degree an hour. So again, you can imagine how long you're committed for if you're just doing this. Um, and the patient obviously has to be on a monitor, if they, especially if they are alive, because you could potentially have a return of cooler, cooler blood to the center, and that's called afterdrop. Debated as to how significant it is, but um, you could potentially lower their temperature a little bit further in the initial stages. Um, the next thing we can do is internal warming. So we can give people warm fluids. Now we talked about giving one liter of cold fluids reduces your temperature by about half a degree. 
giving one liter of 40 degree fluids increases your temperature by about a quarter of a degree. So this isn't gonna be your, your way out. Um, but large volumes will be needed because they will be quite dehydrated, but just over time. Um, put them in a ranger so you can, a ranger device will warm the fluid up to 40 degrees because if it just goes through the giving set, then that'll cool down again. Um, you can do warmed inhaled air if the patient's intubated and you can do cavity lavage. So we can put a chest drain in, fill up the, not fill up the chest, but put 500 mils of, of warm fluid into the chest near the heart and let it come out again a few minutes later. Um, obviously that's quite invasive and it comes with its own significant risks. If you put a chest drain through a myocardium, that won't go well. Um, but you can also heat uh, the patient by giving them warm fluids through, you know, gastrically, uh, so NG, peritoneal lavage. If you're warming up closer to the heart, that's obviously going to work on the heart better. So that's why I've put them sort of in this order. And bladder irrigation, which we commonly talk about, is really slow, but it does work. It's worth doing. Um, you can get about a three degree an hour heat increase by doing all of these. Um, the best thing to do is to do extracorporeal life support. So this is sort of your, your um, connecting a patient to bypass and heating their heating the blood up externally and then putting it back in. You can heat people up six to ten degrees an hour doing this, so it's much faster. Um, the problem with it is it's extremely resource heavy. There's only a few centres in the UK that do it. The nearest one is Glenfield here, but we also have Bristol and Withenshaw up in Manchester. And it's worth having a chat with, if you fancy a long drive, um, it's worth having a chat with the desk about whether that's a viable option for someone. They have quite narrow criteria to be eligible for it, but we've had people sort of, not in the West Mids, but as old as 95 survive cardiac arrest from being warmed by ECMO. So age alone is not a factor. Um, it is, yeah, it's pretty resource heavy, but um, it's, it's something that's definitely worth considering because it has good evidence behind it. And then finally, in terms of how they're going to do in the future, um, you always hear the adage of they're not dead until they're warm and dead. Uh, we try and warm them up to at least 30 degrees, at which point we can sort of start making more confident predictions about how they're going to do. Um, you can use things like ICE uh, or HOPE score, which is the sort of hypothermic outcome prediction after ECLS. Both of those scores only apply in hospital, so not relevant if you're not working in hospital. Um, and in that time, while you're managing the arrest, you can clarify your history. Uh, you can get all the details of what exactly has happened in what order and, um, and see if this is a workable situation or not. In terms of outcomes, yeah, your healthy, healthy young witnessed arrests uh, or healthy young witnessed severe hypothermia do better than those who have had an unwitnessed sort of collapse. Um, those who've gone underwater, again, we'll talk about drowning another time, but if you're underwater as opposed to just immersed in water, then you're likely to do more badly, especially if you've been there for a length of time. And if there's lots of comorbidities, then that's gonna cause a problem too. But if you do survive a hypothermic cardiac arrest, there's a very good rate of, um, of lack of neurological impairment, so full recovery, apart from obviously things like frostbite that can cause other injuries too but your neurology can be restored in up to 40% of survivors who have not had invasive, uh, sort of, sorry, ECLS. Those who do go to ECLS centers have reported rates of up to about 70% full neurological recovery. Um, again, this is people who have survived, so the survival rate is quite low, unfortunately. Um, but uh, in terms of, you know, do we do the right thing or not? Um, let me just go back very quickly because I've got a note here. Longest manual CPR that someone has survived in the UK was a 42-year-old man who was at 23.2 degrees in arrest and underwent six and a half hours of CPR. 
and made a full neurological recovery. Uh, the longest uh, VF that we've had, um, again, not in the West Mids, but in, I think it's in Cumbria, uh, as a 25-year-old lady was found at 17 degrees in ventricular fibrillation, and she underwent resus for six hours, 45 minutes before reverting to spontaneous circulation, retaining it and going home. Not the same day. Um, <laughs> but it does happen. You can get really cold and get better. 13.7 degrees is the lowest temperature survived in an adult in the UK, and 11.8 is the lowest survived temperature in a two-year-old in the UK. So, um, yeah, so, so there's hope. You might think this guy is clearly frozen, but actually, if they're not clearly frozen, then they might have a really good outcome. So did he do the right thing? Um, it's really hard to sit back and pick apart all these details and think about scores and levels and um, you know your algorithms when you're on scene in an arrest anyway, let alone when they're cold. Um, and it's really easy to pick apart cases in retrospect. It's right that they are picked apart, um, but it's easy for any doctors, myself included in the past, because I didn't have the, the insight really of what you guys do. But it's really easy for us to kind of criticize a decision to bring a patient in arrest and say, well, this is really resource heavy. Why have you done this? This patient's clearly dead. Sometimes they are clearly dead, but actually you don't have all that information. And we do by the time you've brought the patient. Um, and at the end of the day, you, you have to go home and live with the decision that you've made with, about this patient. Um, so if you are in doubt, no one's going to genuinely, no one is really going to hold it against you if you bring a patient in. Even if we stop within a couple of minutes, you've done your best by that patient and that's given us time to gather a history and it's given us time to assemble a team. Um, and you can go home knowing that you have done your best even if the patient does ultimately die. But as you've seen, really low temperatures are survivable, sometimes with really surprising outcomes. So if you're in doubt, do what you think is right. No one's going to hold that against you. This is uh, just to finish on. This is the accidental hypothermia guideline for the European Resource Council. And the QR code just takes you to a PDF version of that. Um, and that is basically this whole talk summarized to one page. Um, so hopefully that's been clear. And hopefully it's been useful. Cheers, guys. That's it for this Care Team Sessions podcast. You'll find information on how to get your CPD certificate in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow us on social media at WM Care Team. Thanks for listening. <laughs>